We'll begin at chapter 7, verse 53. And as I said, we'll read through verse 11, a very well-known instance in the life of Jesus. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Please bow with me and let's pray. Father, grant us the grace this morning to hear afresh from you. Many of us are very familiar with this story, this instance from the life of Jesus. And the familiarity of it at times, Father, can rob us of applying it to our lives. So we ask you, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Incline our hearts not to think about others and how they need to hear this, but Lord, apply it to us. If our hearts have become hard, please, Lord, break them we have become apathetic, Lord, I pray that you would stir within us and rekindle a passion for you. And above all, Father, may we know your power and your grace and glory in the forgiveness that you give. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Leadership Journal is a journal aimed toward pastors and those in the ministry. And one of the features of this journal is that there are often cartoons, just one-frame cartoons within them that carry underneath them a, a caption explaining what is going on. In one of these cartoons, it's clear that the pastor has finished preaching his sermon. He's standing at the door saying goodbye, good morning to his, his parishioners, and the members of the congregation, those who attended that morning. One man is shaking hands with him. This man is saying to the pastor, Powerful sermon, Pastor. Thoughtful. Well-researched. 
And I can always see myself in your sermons. And I want you to knock it off. This instance from the life of Jesus is one where each of us can see ourselves in the story. We don't have to look hard to see where we may fit. Some of us may read this and we need to ask ourselves, are we the Pharisees? Are we stuck with a, an attitude of judgmentalism and superiority caught in our legalism? Or are we the woman that has been caught in the very act of sin? Who is now publicly exposed for all to know the things she hoped to keep hidden? Or maybe, maybe by the grace of God we see Jesus at work in our lives so that our response is one of grace and truth. Now before proceeding with the message and dealing with those questions, there is a preliminary issue that we must address because when you open your Bible to this passage, it's staring you in the face. And it's the fact that in most of your translations, there will be an asterisk directing you to a footnote or maybe as it is in the English Standard Version, even before you read verse 53, there is marked off by parentheses the phrase, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And I wanted to address this because this could cause us to say, well, why is this even in here? Why was it inserted? Is it not original to the Bible? And I wanted to do my best to try to answer some of those issues. Of course, we do not have the original manuscripts of the Bible. So we base our translations upon the manuscripts that we do have. And as in this case, the older the manuscript or the closer it is to the event, the most, more trustworthy it's deemed to be. And that makes sense. It's closer to the actual event. Well, as older manuscripts have been found, they simply do not contain these verses. Furthermore, the language that is used in verses 8, chapter 8, 1 through 11 is unique. There are phrases in here that are not found anywhere else in the Gospel of John. For example, this is the only place where the word scribes is used. Which leads scholars to conclude that this was not written by John. However, that does not mean that this event did not occur. It doesn't mean that this did not actually happen. In fact, it's believed by scholars that this did, this did indeed happen. It is an actual event from the life of Jesus. First of all, it fits with His character. This is something the one who ate with sinners and who welcomed tax collectors and who spoke forgiveness, this is something that Jesus would do. Furthermore, it fits within the narrative of how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were trying to trap Jesus. So the question becomes, why here? Why is this particular instance in the life of Jesus inserted in the Gospel of John at this point? Well, based upon the timing of the manuscripts that do include it, it's believed that this, this instance was included to give an example of how the church should deal with sinners. It's believed that this was inserted at a time where persecution had begun to, to stop. It had ceased. 
And the church was struggling with, well, how should we respond to believers who compromised the faith and said, we don't believe in order to escape persecution, but now that the persecution has stopped, they're coming back and saying, we really do believe. And so it's thought that this was a lesson to the early church not to become judgmental, but to be gracious. In fact, this passage serves as an illustration of what is written in John chapter 7, verse 24. If you'll look back at it. In chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then over in chapter 8, if you'll look at verse 15. Jesus said, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So it's believed that this was inserted in the Gospel of John in this place to answer the question, how should we deal with those that have lapsed? And to be an illustration of these verses about engaging in judgmentalism. So I believe that this is an instance, a real event in the life of Jesus. And like all events within it, like in all great stories, there's a villain a hero, and a victim. The villains are clear in this case. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the religious leaders. And I always have to remind myself that had I lived in this time, like most of the parents in Jerusalem, I would have looked at these men and I would have said, that's what true faith looks like. That's what you want to be like. Those are the men that follow the Torah. They are godly. They are righteous. They are pious. However, the appearance really betrays the inner reality. The scripture reveals that these are men that are full of self-righteousness. And even though they are convinced that they are defending Yahweh and the Torah by opposing Jesus, they are really using the law to reach their own self-serving desires. They desire to stop Jesus. That desire and their attitude of judgmentalism collide in this woman that is caught in adultery. Understand that these men are not seeking justice. They're really not after the truth. If they were after the truth, if they were seeking justice, the man that was guilty as well as the woman would have been brought before Jesus. But notice, he is conspicuously absent. It's as if they said, you know, that man is not going to help our case, but let's bring this woman, this this victim, and let's parade her in front of Jesus and the people. And by that means, we can trap him. This woman is simply an object that they are using to them. A victim. And now they are manipulating things to trap Jesus. But deep down, they know their own sin. I can say that based on verses 7 through 9. Notice when Jesus stands up and he utters that phrase that even even non-believers are very familiar with. Let you without sin cast the first stone. In other words, if you are sinless, if you are innocent, if you are pure, if you've never sinned, then go ahead, kill her. Go ahead, pick up the stone and throw it. Notice the Bible says, 
one by one, they begin walking away. You can hear the stones hit the ground as their hands release them because their hands are dirty. And notice he says it starts with the older ones. More aware. They walk away. You see, their self-righteousness, their judgmentalism was simply a mask to hide their own sin. You see, judgmentalism and self-righteousness is not just something they dealt with. You and I fight it too. In fact, often we embrace it because it keeps us from dealing with our own sin. As long as we can put up the appearance that we are righteous and that we are good, we don't have to deal with the reality of the darkness of our own heart. And by engaging in judgmentalism, and I use that word intentionally because we are called to be discerning. We are called to declare what is right and what is wrong. But judgmentalism does it with an arrogance, with no humility, no grace. An arrogance that looks down on others to point out their sins and their mistakes so that we simply do not have to admit ours. We got ourselves, well I may sin but I would never do that. And it's just a ploy at self-righteousness. Keith Green was a contemporary Christian musician who really, in many ways, has had a lasting, a lasting influence. You may not be familiar with his name, but you've sung his songs. Keith Green, who wrote, uh, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful, he and his wife co-wrote, There is a Redeemer. Tragically, he and two of his children were killed in 1982 in a plane crash, but his songs, his writings are still available. Keith Green, by his own admission, was a preacher. Some would say even a prophet. To go to his concerts was to not only hear the songs, but to be faced, confronted with the truth of the word. In fact, he had a reputation for being overly harsh. Steve Camp, another musician, wrote that a few months before Keith Green was killed, he had a conversation with him. In which Keith said these words, Steve, I'm realizing something. I shouldn't be saying they. I need to be saying we. See, when I go and I preach, I'm always talking about how they need to get their lives straight. They need to do this. They need to, to repent. But I should be saying we, we, we. It was the realization that in his own life there was sin. That he was hiding underneath this veneer of self-righteousness. We must start with our own lives. And then we see there is no room for judgmentalism or self-righteousness. Because you and I have an incredible ability to justify our actions. You see, we judge ourselves by our motives. But others we will look at and we will judge only by their actions without giving them the benefit of a doubt. For example, suppose you woke up one morning and you woke up late. Just imagining you're late for work or you're late for that appointment. So, man, you hurry, you get dressed, you hop in the car, and you are driving like it is the Indianapolis 500. You're weaving in and out of traffic. That light is not red. It's just a different shade of yellow. I'm going. And it's okay. I'm late. I've got to get there. The next day, though, things aren't so hurried. And you're sitting at the traffic light when all of a sudden a car zooms by you. Weaving in and out of traffic. What's the response? That idiot. They shouldn't let people like that have a, have a license. What's the difference? We've judged by our motives, ourselves, others, by their actions. 
You see, when we read of this, we're challenged to ask ourselves, are we any different from the Pharisees? Do we judge others to feel superior to ourselves? I may be bad, but I'm not that bad. Are we quick to assume the worst? Or do we use others? Do we use comments, words, not snarky responses to make ourselves feel good? It's hard to admit, but we may have more in common with the Pharisees than we think. We may see ourselves also in this woman that is flung before Jesus. Now she's guilty. There's no protestation of innocence. Jesus doesn't say, well, you've been falsely accused. No, if anything, Jesus, Jesus admits that she is guilty. Adultery. Caught in the very act. And now her sin is very public. Everyone knows. Here we are for 2,000 years later. We know. The rest of her life would be lived like that tragic victim heroine in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter. Hester Prynne, forever marked by the Scarlet A. That's her life. She's been used by the Pharisees. See, they want to trap Jesus. They want to put him in a predicament. And she's simply the bait. You see, if they bring her in front of Jesus and she's guilty of adultery and they say, Jesus, okay, according to the law of Moses, she has to die. And Jesus says, yes, kill her, stone her. That's what she deserves. Then they can say, where's all this talk about compassion? Where's all this talk about grace, Jesus? You speak of forgiveness, but not to her. But then, if Jesus says forgive her, look at him. He's, he's easy on sin. He ignores the Torah. How can you trust a teacher like that who disregards what the Torah says? They're trying to trap Jesus on the horns of this dilemma so he has no way out. And this, this woman is simply the means to do that. It struck me as I was reading this and studying there's a chance she was just a teenager. Understand, a woman was considered, a girl was considered to be a woman when she could bear children. So it's very, very possible she was 16, 17 years old. We don't know. But it's possible. Think about the emotions. Shame. Was there anger? Probably. She's being used. She's been treated unjustly. Pain. Isolation. She's totally isolated. There's no one to defend her. No family member, no lawyer, no one to speak on her defense. She is totally isolated. And I wonder today if there are those of us who could share those same emotions. Maybe just like this woman, you are identified by sin in your past. And those consequences are destroying you. Maybe you're carrying a sense of shame. Even now, because that besetting sin continues to haunt you. You see, when we carry guilt and shame, we will do odd things. I'm convinced there are people that are characterized by anger because it is due to unresolved guilt. Many of you walk in isolation. 
because you're afraid that if you let people in, you'll have to deal with the guilt and the shame. And you don't want anybody to know the reality of your life. So it's easier to keep people at bay, to stay isolated. But in the end, those emotions, that guilt, the isolation, the pain will end up destroying you. Much like it did a young lady by the name of Sarah. Sarah was the belle of New Haven, Connecticut. Lavish parties, well-liked. She was very rich. Living in the late 1800s, she had an income of $1,000 a day in the late 1800s. Upon birth, she inherited $20 million. She was wealthy beyond belief. Today, she'd be a billionaire. Everybody was surprised, though, when she picked up from New Haven, Connecticut and moved all the way out west to San Jose, California. They were even more surprised when she purchased property, 160 acres to be exact, and then started building a house. It wasn't the fact that she was building a house that got everybody's attention. It was the manner in which it was being built. You see, Sarah hired 16 carpenters and paid them to work 24 hours a day, which they did for the next 38 years. The layout of the house was weird. Every window had 13 panes, every wall 13 panels, every closet 13 hooks, every chandelier had 13 globes. The floor plan was just outright bizarre. There were hallways that led nowhere, doors that opened up to brick walls, rooms that seemed to have no purpose or design. After 38 years when the mansion was finished it covered six acres and people wondered why the story goes that Sarah was trying to escape guilt that in her mind every night at 2 a.m. she would have a servant ring the bell in the bell tower and she would wrestle with ghosts from the past soldiers Indians and others that were killed by the Winchester repeating rifle. See, Sarah Winchester could not get over the fact that her family's wealth was built upon death and the guilt drove her insane. Guilt and shame will drive us to places we never intended to go. But the good news is this, hear me, you don't have to live with the guilt and the shame. You don't have to let that sin of the past define you. Because notice what happens here. Here is Jesus, and he is face to face with her. Jesus' response is classic. It's one of those scenes that, that one day I hope he will tell us about in person. Because as the Pharisees and the scribes start accusing this woman, Jesus bends down and starts riding in the dirt. Don't you know that had to irritate them? Because they keep asking, look at verse 7. They continue to ask him, Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus, what are you going to do? She needs to die. Jesus, what are you going to do? And he's writing and he's writing and he's writing. And of course, it's been speculated. What was he writing? Text doesn't tell us. Some guess that he was writing the sins of those Pharisees, maybe. Some think he was even writing the names of the men who had also been with this woman, maybe. Some think he was writing this passage. You'll see it up on the screen from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 13. They guessed that he was writing, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. 
For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Don't you think that would be shocking to the Pharisees when they read this? Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth and Jesus is writing in the dust. The point is we don't know what he wrote but we know clearly what he said. He confronts them with their judgmentalism. Go ahead. If you're sinless, condemn her to death, let her die. When they leave, Jesus is face to face with her. Notice he stands up. And he speaks with her. Don't be thrown off by the language where it says, woman, where are they? Woman was a term of, of respect. He is showing her respect. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Lord. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now understand, Jesus does not deny nor condone her sin. But he shows her mercy and compassion. The truth in love. He gives what she needs and it is what we need now to know the grace of God that does not condemn the one who is broken. Pastor Matt Chandler shares the story of a time he and his wife took a young lady by the name of Kim to, to a concert and to hear preaching. His heart sank though when the preacher stood up that night to begin preaching about purity. And he gave this long list of all the reasons that you should remain pure. And it was all just negative. But he started out his sermon by having a rose. And he smelled the rose. And he said, it's so fragrant. And look how beautiful it is. And he said, I want you all to enjoy the rose too. So he started the rose on the first row and asked everyone to, to look at it and to smell it. And it began making its way through the crowd. And as he preached about sexual purity and all the, just the do's and the don'ts and everything, at the end of his message, he asked for the rose back. Of course, by this time, it had been handled by several hundred people. The petals were falling off. The stem bent. Any pleasant fragrance was long since gone. And he got the rose and he held it up. And he asked this question. Who in the world would want this rose after it's been so handled in such a way? No one. And he ended there. A few weeks later, Matt Chandler gets a phone call. Kim has been in a wreck. She's in the hospital. Could he go by and see her? As he walks into the room, the mother acknowledges him, glad he's there, and says, I'm going to give you and Kim a few minutes to talk. And she leaves. The first question Kim asks is this, Matt, am I a dirty rose? Matt looked at her and he said this, I want to answer the question that preacher asked that night. Kim, Jesus wants the dirty roses. That's who Jesus wants. Those that are broken and hurt. Those that are carrying shame and guilt. Those that are carrying pain. Jesus wants you. He wants you to know the grace and the mercy that flows from Him. To know your life does not have to be defined by the past. Your life does not have to be defined by sin or failure. It can be defined by the grace and mercy given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now such language makes us uncomfortable. 
grace like that, that's condoning sin. But do you hear the words of Jesus? He's not condoning sin. What does he say to her? Go and sin no more. He is saying a life that has been captured by the grace of God has a different trajectory. Where once it lived contrary to the will of God, once grace is received, it lives for the will of God. But the challenge is this, leave the sin and the shame behind. Only by grace. So church, where do we fall? That's the question. The truth is, at different times in my life, I can see myself in each of these. But I want so much, so much to daily be like Jesus. To speak the truth in love. To not compromise, but at the same time to extend grace and mercy. And not to be quick to judge, but to give grace. Where are you? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.